If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? Are you okay? Well, I'm sort of excited and getting very, very nervous because a week's time I'm getting my next tattoo. And yeah, I'm starting to feel quite nervous about it. I wasn't going to have one and my husband decided he was going to get a tattoo and you have to book these like a year in advance. So he booked his, put his deposit down. Anyway, he's decided he doesn't want one anymore. And I thought, well, we can't waste that money, can't waste that deposit. So suddenly I'm having another tattoo. So we'll see how that goes. A quick pantomime update. We now have the prompt there. So we've had to put our scripts down. That's a nervous time, I have to say, because you think you know your words until you can't hold on to the script anymore. Then it turns out you don't know your words. So that's a lot of fun. But we've got some books. We've got some really good books today. And we've got a call in. We've got a bookish call in from Rob as well. So let's get started. What books have we got? Well, we've got books about haunted theatres, about drag queens, about self-driving cars, about a lost love, about an asylum. (laughs) We literally have it all. So let me talk you through all the books that we've got today. First of all, we've got The Whispering Muse by Laura Purcell. Then we've got Becoming Ted by Matt Cain. And both Laura and Matt are going to join us on this episode and tell us all about these wonderful books. Then we've got Look Both Ways by Linwood Barclay. The One That Got Away by Charlotte Rickson. And The Darlings of the Asylum by Noel O'Reilly quite a selection. And as I say, we've got our first call in. Last week, I mentioned that you can go to speakpipe.com forward slash QBR for quick book reviews, QBR, and you can leave a message and come on the podcast. You need to tell us maybe what you're reading or what you've read recently and loved, what your favourite biscuit is, of course. Just join us there. You'd be ever so welcome. But let's get started on the first book. So The Whispering Muse by Laura Purcell. Now, it's fair to say that the first Laura Purcell book I read, well, I listened to, The Silent Companions, freaked me out so much. It scared me silly. It really did. There were some sound effects that just I just still haven't recovered from. And so I read this book and I was a bit I was a bit worried about how scared I was going to be. And yes, yes, it's scary, but 
Oh, I thought it was great. And it's in a theatre. Who doesn't love a theatre? So here's the blurb. At the Mercury Theatre in London's West End, rumours are circulating of a curse. It is said that the lead actress, Lilith, has made a pact with the tragic muse of Greek mythology to become the greatest actress to ever grace the stage. Suspicious of Lilith, the jealous wife of the theatre owner sends dresser Jenny to spy on her and, desperate for the money to help her family, Jenny agrees. What Jenny finds is a woman as astonishing in her performance as she is provocative in nature. On stage, it's as though Lilith is possessed by the characters she plays. Yet off stage, she is as tragic as the muse who inspires her. And Jenny, sorry for her, befriends the troubled actress. But when strange events begin to take place around the theatre, Jenny wonders if the rumours are true and fears that when the muse comes calling for payment, the cost will be too high. Let's do first sentence. Chapter one. The offer was too good to be true. I knew that from the start. Opportunities don't fall into your lap from the sky. They must be fought for, tooth and nail. I knew, but I wanted her to prove me wrong. Gosh, I thought this book was unnerving, sinister. I love the theatre element. I mean, it, I think it's her best book yet. I really do. I really enjoyed it. But enough about me. Let's talk to Laura now. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast Laura Purcell, whose latest fabulous unsettling book is The Whispering Muse. Laura, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, well, it's really good to talk to you. Let's start with the basics, right? What gave you the idea for this book? Well, so The Whispering Muse is set in a Victorian theatre and I've always been a big theatre fan and I've always I've always enjoyed the idea of like a haunted, creepy theatre, probably because of my um, teenage obsession with the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to set something in a theatre. And I came across the story of an opera singer in the 1880s called Frederick Federici. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But this poor man, basically, he was playing the part of Mephistopheles in the opera of Dr. Faustus. So for those of you that don't know, that's the, the demon character in, in Dr. Faustus. And he went through the performance and in his final exit, a trap door was to open and sort of take the demon back down to hell. That was the set piece. And in that moment when the trap door opened, the poor guy had a heart attack and died by horrible coincidence, as, you know, he was descending to hell. And I thought that was such dramatic timing, you know, this poor guy. And it got me thinking about, well, you know, what if a, an actor did make a, a Faustian pact? And what if they were sort of doomed to die on stage in this, this terrible way? So it got my mind ticking and, and the book kind of grew from there. Wow. So when you had that initial germ that seed of an idea how then did it, you work that into the book and tell us a little bit about the story and what we find yeah yeah it's a, I mean the writing process itself for this book was very complicated and difficult because I changed my mind a hundred times um and uh yeah I think it's explained in the notes um you know I deleted over 140,000 words which is like two novels worth of a book so yeah. <laughs> it's always a bit tangled talking about this writing process but I found the idea developed when I started looking at how how I wanted to frame this story um about this this Faustian pact did I want it to be from the point of view of the actor or or someone else who who sees these things going on and actually I thought that would be more effective 
if, if the reader came into it from someone else's point of view and they can see these strange changes in the actor and they're not quite sure what's going on. Um, so I came up with my protagonist, Jenny, um, and Jenny works in the costume department, which was a great joy for me in getting to research theatrical costumes and all the materials and the face pain. So Jenny has had a difficult life herself. She's struggling for money. Um, she's been left in difficult circumstances by her roguish brother. And she has to take this job dressing, dressing the actress out of desperation. She does enjoy it, but there are terms to the condition of her employment. And so while she gets this lovely job dressing actresses, and uh, addressing all her financial needs, she's also hired to spy on the actress she's dressing. The uh, The theatre owner has a very jealous wife who's seen this wonderful actress, and the way her husband looks at this wonderful actress, <laughs> she thinks something strange is going on, so she hires Jenny to spy on her. And that's straight away from the first chapter. You don't mess around. We're straight into the violin <laughs> and the on the story. <laughs> yes, great. Nothing wrong with that at all. I, I love that. Was that always what you wanted to do? Just straight away we're in? Um, like I said, because the book was originally originally in two, two timelines. Um, so Jenny wasn't actually even in the original draft. It was all to do with... Um, the next generation and looking back on what had happened at this theatre many years ago and piecing it together and um, that was how it originally started but actually when I was discussing my problems with it with my agent she said well look the real story is between these women here this actress and the theatre owner's wife that's where all the real drama is maybe you should focus on that so I took a step back and I, I changed the whole thing around um, I had a brilliant brilliant uh, editor that was really helping me with this book I dedicated the book to her because she did <laughs> so much to help me through this quagmire but yeah it, it really changed the beginning and you know in the end and everything changed so I can't say I had a clear idea from the beginning that I was going to jump straight into the action but I feel that's best with with storytelling in general just to get going. <laughs> I love that I've obviously misunderstood the notes at the end because I thought it was that you there was a different a, a completely different book that you just shelved and then the whispering muse was like a clean start after having to press delete on all those oh uh, no it kind of grew out of the ashes oh, i see <laughs> now i'm now i'm understanding it better and and it's this combination of spookiness unsettling and theater that i just <laughs> It, uh, just yes please I'm, I'm here for it <laughs> great and I have to admit you know you've you've caused me some sleepless nights before the silent companions the audiobook <laughs> version is something that still haunts me to this day <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> that noise on the floor I can still hear it it's, oh yeah. wow do you know I don't think I've listened to the audiobook the whole way through so I don't think I've heard the hiss um it's always really strange listening to your own work I find it I like to listen to a little bit and hear how they do the voices and they're always brilliant, you know, brilliant performers. But there's something cringeworthy about listening to your own work. I can't always get through the audiobooks because I know it's my words. So I haven't had that experience. Yes, I feel the same listening back to this podcast. If there's any <laughs> errors, it's the last thing I want to listen to, my voice. But you have this unique style that's got this unsettling edge and yet it's not it's not Stephen King do you know what I mean mm. it's just it's spookiness unsettling you know things are 
are happening, but you don't know what. Is it hard to maintain that balance between unsettling and not veering into horror? Yes, yes, it is very difficult. And, you know, a lot of my instincts are to go for horror because I love <laughs> I love a horror novel. And often I think my first drafts are probably more horror novels. And then between oh. um, my agent and my editor, we kind of dial it back a bit and, <laughs> and add just more unsettling. You know, there's a lot of snobbery about horror in the literary in the literary world. And, you know, there's this idea that things will sell better, like, unless you're Stephen King, obviously, will sell better if they're just gothic and a bit spooky rather than full on horror. But I mean, I think you'll, you'll see there are a few little moments in the book where I've been allowed to go full horror. <laughs> yes, but it was fine. It wasn't, I didn't think, oh, I'm not good. It, it wasn't Silent Companions. I could, maybe I'm just grown up a bit more. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's the thing. When I wrote The Silent Companions before it, it sort of sold, like I wrote it as a horror book. I wanted that uh, to be a horror book. And, you know, we dialed, we dialed it back a lot. But, you know, people still sort of say to me, oh, that's the one that really scared me. So um, I'm glad I, I got my, my horror in there. <laughs> <laughs> Did the characters stay with you afterwards in this latest book, The Whispering Muse? Are those characters still there? Yeah, I mean... I think all the characters have a part of me in them. And with The Whispering Muse, you know, I feel in a way it was a bit more of an honest book because I was going through some really difficult times and I didn't have the chance to think too much in the end with the draft. I just had to go and um, in order to meet the deadline. And to some extent, you know, Lilith, uh, the actress, is my creative side. And there's a lot of my creative side in her there. You know, she has a lot of woe is me moments and overly dramatic moments and and determination. And I, I feel like that's the side of me and, and that Jenny is the other uh, more rational side of me that's sort of shouting at her and saying, what are you doing? Pull it together. <laughs> <laughs> and desperately trying to look after everyone in her life. And that was very much me at the time when I was writing the book. I was looking after a lot of my family members because we were going through a difficult time. So, yeah, I really feel like Jenny is my practical everyday self and um and Lilith is uh my you know more flamboyant creative side but that's a real test of an author yes to write when things everything's okay but when everything in your life is unsettled and and you've got some difficulties if you can still write that's uh yeah I mean this is the thing I'm a full-time author this is my job and I'm the only uh income earner in my family so I don't really have a choice you know if (laughs) if things are hard I've just got to suck it up and get the writing done and yes that is really hard but in some ways I think it does it does help that you know you can't be too overly dramatic and uh you know lay on your chase lounge saying woe is me I can't I can't get through this plot hole you just kind of have to (laughs) as Jenny would say you know sort of suck it up and get on with it (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely as my daughter's drama teacher says suck it up buttercup (laughs) (laughs) that's it see (laughs) that's the theatre world (laughs) yes exactly so did you get to uh, go behind the scenes more in theatres as you were researching there no not a lot see my plan was to do this but then it was the pandemic and lockdown which is all through I was writing this book so I didn't get to go to the theatre or do anything. Um, after, um, was it before or afterwards? I did do a tour of my local theatre, uh, the Mercury, just a sort of group tour. And, and that's why I named the theatre in the book, the Mercury, after my local theatre in Colchester. So, yeah, I did a little group behind the scenes tour and saw a few things. I, you know, I go to the theatre a lot and I did theatre studies 
uh, at GCSE and A-level. So I'm very familiar with that world. The only difference really being in the Victorian era, obviously everything was done very differently. But a lot of that is sort of been, you know, academic book research rather than uh, getting to visit a lovely old Victorian theatre, sadly. (laughs) Have you always been interested in these sort of books? Because... I'm interested in the fact that The Silent Companions, I know we keep going on about it, but it was your first book. It wasn't. Uh, have you, oh, wasn't it? <laughs> no, no. Ah. So I started off my career writing about the uh, Hanoverian queens. So it was kind of like Philippa Gregory, but for the Georgian era. Ah. That was the beginning of my career with a small publisher. I mean, it's only, the first one's only just out and it's advanced like eight years later. So <laughs> for an idea of how well they sold, um, you know, that was my real passion, to be honest. But it just wasn't that marketable for some reason. So, I'd, you know, I'd come up with the idea for a, a horror story. And I'm quite eclectic in my tastes. You know, I love Disney. I love rom-coms. I also love horror. <laughs> I, I just have... <laughs> have these tastes and I wanted to write something about these creepy silent companions these these wooden boards that I'd discovered and I was always been a big fan of Susan Hills the woman in black that's the first time I remember being properly petrified was when I went to uh, the theatre and, and saw that I was so scared I cried and I think that's the only time that's actually happened to me and it's continued to you know I've after that obviously I read the book I've seen TV adaptions I've seen movies in every time it gets me even though I know what's going to happen so my plan with the silent companions was I wanted to write something creepy about these wooden boards that scared me or scared someone as much as the woman in black scared me that was my goal with that and it was just so I can't say how incredible it was that Susan Hill who wrote woman in black gave me a quote on the book she read it and she said it was terrific and that just blew my mind I was like right okay mission accomplished (laughs) I don't care what anybody else says about it Susan Hill who inspired it liked it so it's one of the few books because I had the book and the audiobook but it's one of the few books that I couldn't keep in the house after I'd read it I had to pass it on (laughs) I can't I can't see that but I think that's the thing I I've read a lot of books uh you know that are sort of creepy but very few of them actually scared me. Like, I enjoyed them. They gave me sort of little chills, but I wanted something that actually scared me. And, you know, that's that's actually really difficult to pull off. It's a huge amount of work. Not with me. I find Roald Dahl's The Big Friendly Giant scary enough. <laughs> you know, we're starting with the low bar. <laughs> I mean, no, I can see that. <laughs> but this, I mean, I do, oh, you, people probably say it all the time, but I do mean it. I think this is your best. Yeah, I I just... Oh, loved it and I was interested in whether you could have written this as your first book or whether it sort of stands on the shoulders of all the other books you know you can only write this one because you've written the others and gone yeah I think so like my goal as an author is to to change and grow all the time you know I want to get better with every book that's my plan and um you know, unfortunately, there seems to be a bit of an expectation in the industry that each book should just be like the last one, if you know what I mean. But just with slightly different, um, you know, your readers, they want things that are like what you've written before, but just a little bit different. <laughs> and I, I tend to be a bit more explorative than that. I'm like, I want to write something entirely new. I want to uh, try this to try that. But no, I think you you learn with every book you write. And as I say, like the amount of work that went into this one was just ridiculous. Like I've never worked so hard on a book on my life. Or I've never worked so hard on anything in my life um, <laughs> or through such harrowing time. To hear that, that you really liked it is amazing to me because 
I got to the point where I was just like, I just need to get a coherent book out. If it's just a story and it makes sense, I'll be happy with it. <laughs> and, then, and some people, you know, they'll be saying it's my best. And I thought, oh, wow, that's brilliant. It's wonderful to hear. It makes all the pain a bit more worth it. Is it is your next book, I presume you started writing that, is the pain less with that one? Well, kind of. I'm doing a bit of a new thing. So I've uh, signed a two-book contract to write some young adult books that are hopefully going to allow me to indulge my love of sort of horror and gothic monsters a bit more. So I'm I'm writing that, the second draft at the moment. Um, it's called Silver and Moonstone. It's going to come out next year, hopefully. But again, it's a brand new learning curve because I haven't written for a young adult audience before. And and that's been, you know, it's a great challenge. But again, it's a challenge. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, (laughs) my personal circumstances are a bit better than they were for The Whispering Muse. So (laughs) there's not that pain, at least. That's something. I mean, we come on to some very important questions now on on the podcast. Mm. So, you know, it's a very serious moment. One of the most important questions is... To power all your writing, what is your biscuit of choice? Oh, I love biscuits. Um, so I really like hobnobs. Um, I think hobnobs are amazing. And there was a time a little while ago where they were doing a sticky toffee pudding hobnob, and it was incredible. It was so nice, but I haven't been able to get them again since. So I'm <laughs> I'm just living a deprived life now. <laughs> I've tasted the glory, but I can never have it again. <laughs> Are those chocolate-covered ones as well? Do they have the chocolate? Yeah, yeah. they sort of had, so the, the normal hobnob, they've got a layer of milk chocolate on and a kind of caramelly toffee thing underneath. It's just so nice, so nice. Oh, well, the search continues. For... It, will, it will continue. If anybody finds any, please send them to me. <laughs> and then the last question, which does have a slight theatre link, but is perhaps the oddest question I'm going to ask you. <laughs> At the moment, I am undergoing rehearsals for the pantomime Cinderella. I'm the fairy godmother. Oh, amazing. (laughs) It's Amdram at its best. If you were in the pantomime Cinderella, which character would you like to play? Now, I don't know if you need some reminders. So obviously there's Cinderella, there's the stepmother, the father, Buttons. Yeah, I was thinking, I was trying to think like what's in the pantomime version because sometimes it's different, isn't it? To uh... Yes. And in our pantomime, it's very different in, <laughs> indeed. I think, I mean, I think I would love to play a wicked stepmother. I would really love to play a wicked stepmother. Um, that, that would be great. It's fun. funny. <laughs> so many authors choose the, step, the stepmother as someone just to really play it. Play it <laughs> so, yeah, you're among friends with that. But it's just been wonderful to hear all about the Whispering Muse and just talk about the process and all the inspiration so laura purcell thank you so very much oh thank you for having me thank you coming up an interview with matt kane and more book reviews when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Let's get straight on to the next book, which is Becoming Ted by Matt Cain. Oh, I love this book. Let me read you the blurb on this one. Ted Ainsworth has always worked at his family's ice cream business in the quiet Lancashire town of St. Luke's-on-Sea. He doesn't even like ice cream, though he's never told his parents that. When Ted's husband suddenly leaves him, the bottom falls out of his world. But what if this could be an opportunity to put what he wants first? This could be the chance to finally follow his secret dream, something Ted has never told anyone. Oh, let's do first sentence. Shall I do the prologue? Yes, OK, let's do this. Ted stands on the stage in complete darkness. Every muscle in his body is clenched. He stretches out his fingers, giving his hands a little shake and tries to relax his shoulders. But nothing works. A bolt of panic shoots through him. Oh, God, can I really do this? This book it's like a hug in a book yes there's some sad elements but it's lovely it's uplifting it's joyful it's what we need it's um it's about love but loving ourselves as well as others oh just absolutely wonderful if your day needs brightening and whose doesn't frankly at the moment then you need becoming ted it's Lovely, as I say, hugging a book. And let's go and talk to Matt now about this. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Matt Kane, whose latest glorious book is Becoming Ted. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me, fellow parents. Great to be here. It's great to talk to you about this wonderful, wonderful book. Let's start with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yes. Shall I give you a little elevator pitch? I've yes. just done it on a radio interview, funnily <laughs> enough, before this, so I should be quite um, sick and primed. It's set in the northwest of England in a fictional seaside town. And as the book opens, our lead character, 43-year-old Ted, has just been dumped by his husband. He's devastated. But then he starts to think, actually, maybe my marriage wasn't perfect. And maybe my husband held me back. Maybe it's finally time to put my 
myself first and, crucially, to pursue my long-suppressed dream of becoming a drag queen, which he does, and he may or may not have the chance to find second time around love again, but I don't want to reveal too much. But it's basically about grabbing second chances, whether that's your dream, your route to self-fulfillment, love and happiness romantically, and um, it's about it never being too late to do that and um, trying to find that inner bravery, inner strength to silence the doubting voices you can sometimes have in your head, which maybe come from low self-esteem, the kind of things people have told you about yourself growing up that um, hold you back and you end up holding yourself back. And it's about conquering those. And my hero, Ted, as you know, does this by adopting this outrageous, exaggerated drag alter ego and accessing this inner strength he didn't even know he had. But um, I really hope it appeals to people who have all kinds of dreams that they haven't yet pursued, not just becoming a drag queen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's like a hug in a book. I just thought it was joy-filled. Did it feel like that when you were writing it? Were you writing it with a big smile on your face? Well, funnily enough, Philippa, I do like writing fun, uplifting books. I like humour. I like making myself smile. You know, if I'm going to be stuck in this room where I'm talking to you now at this desk, I want to have a smile on my face. And I've tried, you know, sometimes editors have suggested to me, oh, why don't you write a psychological thriller? Because they're big right now. And I think I'd have to strip the humour out, the warmth, and I can't really write without that. But the interesting thing is, when you write uplifting fiction, or uplit, as it's increasingly known, you have to kind of start on a downer in order to turn it around. And it's always a bit of a challenge to start with a character being devastated, but give hints of that joy within waiting to come bursting out or throw forward to happier times on the horizon. You know, um, because, yeah, my natural bent is very much to write with joy and warmth and humour. Yes, I mean, there are, of course, there are sad bits in the book, but even so, from page one, I think it was the warmth of Ted, even though he's going through these things that just made me feel joyful, Uh, not at his circumstances, but he's just, he's a lovely chap to get to know. Oh, thank you. Well, um, it's good to hear that. Yeah, I've always been very moved by people who later in life still haven't become the person they were meant to be or the best version of themselves. People who have a slightly different true self waiting to come bursting out, you know, and um, I've always found that quite moving. I've always liked those stories. I mean, I don't know whether it's because I grew up gay in the working class North in the 1980s and I did come out. I mean, I was obviously gay and therefore bullied for it. But I, you know, I had to kind of play that down for years, even though I did come out early in life. I don't know whether it's to do with it taking me ages to hit my stride as a writer. You know, my first book, it took me 10 years to get it published. I had so much rejection. And deep down, I knew I had so much to give and I had all these stories I wanted to tell. 
and that was my dream that was desperate to come bursting out. Or I don't know if it's because I only met the love of my life at the age of 44 and have just got married at a time when I thought it wasn't going to happen for me. You know, and all my peers, siblings, everybody was got married at the late 20s, early 30s. You know, I hit 40. I just thought, maybe this isn't going to happen for me. But I felt like I had so much to give a potential partner. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether any of those things have fed into that urge to explore those themes in my writing but yeah that's very that's very much something that motivates me but I mean it's awful that you've had to go through that but how wonderful that things have turned around for you it shows you know you must have quite a strong resilience with having to deal with all of that at school and growing up and being rejected with your book oh yeah I mean it's interesting you know because if if you'd said to me when I first had a load of rejections when I first started writing, how long it would take and what I'd have to go through to get to this point. I'm not sure I could have put myself through it. And at the same time, I think, when I was in my 30s, early 40s, and lonely and desperate to meet somebody, if you'd have told me, you'll meet the love of your life at the age of 44, that's the age it's meant to happen for you, I would have relaxed and it would have all been fine. But, um, and likewise, with kind of, I did have a horrible time growing up, but I think the experiences I went through, the emotions that they prompted have made me a better writer, made me a more compassionate, empathetic writer. Um, I can feel more, I think, because of those things. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, I think you've got to look on it like that, really. Mm, it's a funny old world. If you knew what was coming your way, you know, you might relax or or get more worried. But it's best like Ted that he just experiences it when it happens and it helps him become who he was meant to be. Yes. And I, you know, if you look at my last book, Albert Entwistle, which The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle, which is about a postman in his 60s who is miserable and lonely and he's pulled up the drawbridge from the world and he just keeps his head down and buries himself in work. Um, but he's not happy. He has a series of life crises that uh, make him want to turn his life around and he wants to be happy finally. And he knows that the way to do this is to set off in search of the lost love of his life, a man he hasn't seen for 50 years. And you know, he's been in the closet ever since. This was all hidden away. And, you know, there's a parallel there with Ted who starts off with something he thinks is a horrendous experience, but actually be becomes the spur to um, make him carve out for himself and um, grab hold of the life that he deserves and the life that he really wants to live. And I don't know, I... I find those stories moving. I find them engaging. It's interesting when I tell people about the 10 years of rejection I had for my writing. I feel them warming to me more. And, um, you know, if somebody just, like, knocks out a first draft of a book and they're snapped up by some amazing literary agents at the age of 21, well, you're doing it, you're grimacing, and that's what yes. I like. <laughs> That's what I'm like. When somebody's had a struggle and a journey, when we got married, Philippa, my husband, Harry, and I got married last December. 
and so not long ago at all and it was so emotional and I'm quite an emotional person as you can probably tell so um, I had expected that but because we'd been through a journey and a struggle to find each other and Harry has had his own journey and struggle I don't want to reveal too much about his story but there was so much love for us in the room and so much kind of willing us on and so much happiness for us and I always find it interesting when people think it's romantic that um, childhood sweethearts have only ever kissed each other and I think that's (laughs) not romantic you know I think it's romantic when you have gone through sadness and a battle to find each other and then finally you get there to me that is much more emotionally engaging that's wonderful yeah and the photos of your wedding were just joyful so i thoroughly recommend all on my social media on my instagram my twitter i mean i do it's, it's funny because you never know whether to you don't want to be one of those smug married people and uh, look at my <laughs> wedding but um you know, I kind of feel like I'm allowed to because I had to wait 47 <laughs> years to get married. But uh, maybe I'll maybe I should pause some more. <laughs> well, now there's a very important element of the book that we need to discuss, and that is ice cream. <laughs> It runs throughout the book and uh, it just added the joy for me. Is ice cream important to you, Matt? Well, interestingly, I love ice cream. I absolutely love ice cream. But interestingly, when I was growing up, I didn't like cake. And a child who doesn't like cake, when it came to birthdays, my mum would always have a cake she made for my brother, a cake she made for my sister. I just didn't like cake. Turned out years later that I was diagnosed as severely gluten intolerant. So actually, I probably had an association between having an upset tummy and eating doughy, kind of spongy cake. Looking back now, I can see that when I was growing up gay and everybody said I was a freak, a weirdo, there was something wrong with me, I was defective, and you absorb that message, you know, and you end up feeling quite down on yourself. And little things happen, like you don't like cake. And people will say, you ever heard of a child who doesn't like cake? And that to me became more evidence that there was something wrong with me. So with Ted, my character, I wanted, I don't know what you thought of the scenes where he's in the ice cream parlor, the shop, and everybody around him is loving ice cream and it's their (laughs) life and they're the best thing ever. And he just doesn't like it and he thinks what's wrong with me you know and if you've already got those feelings you're worried about being a disappointment to your parents this that and the other that can only intensify them we should probably say at this point in case your listeners don't know this that he does live at the seaside and his parents their family business is an ice cream shop and he is expected to take over And that, again, is, you know, lots of us have felt like a disappointment to our parents. Absolutely. But um, through his specific experience, I wanted to explore how gay people maybe feel like they've let down their parents. And in his case, he's so grateful that they've accepted him, that he doesn't want to throw it back in their face or do anything that... um, my disappointment he kind of goes along with it even though that's not what he wants to do working in their ice cream shop he really wants to be a drag queen and so many people even though the book's only been out a few weeks so many people have said to me that they're not gay and they don't want to be a drag queen but they totally understand that feeling of not measuring up to the example your parents are setting and 
not wanting to let them down. But for you to hear those things as a child at school, in the playground, I mean, no child should have to go through that. And it must impact on the person that you that you are. Yeah. And no, it absolutely does. It absolutely made me who I am. And at the same time, though, I was bullied for one thing. So obviously I had a difficult relationship with that one thing at the start. And you have to go on a journey to becoming proud of it and part of who you are, which I did a long time ago, which is why I can sit here and talk about it all upbeat with a smile on my face. But I always found it um, horrendous, those people who were bullied at school for absolutely no reason. You know, um, because they must think people just don't like me. There's something about me that, um, you know, I could feel an injustice. People would say I was gay and that was dirty and disgusting and I could feel an injustice and I wanted to put that right. But, you know, if everybody's just horrible to you and they don't like you and they exclude you, it's awful, isn't it? It's awful. Um, And those things can shape you as a person but as I said earlier I think they've also shaped me as a writer and maybe I have to be um thankful to those bullies because they're I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if it weren't for them so when did you become a writer what was the moment that 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 light went on it's difficult to talk about this because it's I never want to kind of misremember it but I was always creative I always wanted to invent characters, make up stories. I was always doing that as a child, but the kind of background that I'm from, I'm from the working class North, my parents were from council estates. I just didn't know any writers. It didn't occur to me that um, I could earn a living from publishing. I never knew about the publishing industry. You know, and in those days, there was no internet. You couldn't find out. The kind of things that you do with the podcast, you know, none of that, existed so the urge was always there but I didn't really I remember in my late teens early 20s thinking I want to become a writer but kind of suppressing the dream kind of in a way that Ted does with wanting to be a drag queen because it just felt impossible and then when I started writing in my late 20s I just got a lot of criticism and rejection for being for writing novels with gay characters or nobody wants to read those or people just said I was a rubbish writer. It's really, I mean, I kind of gave up a few times because you've got to think about how your mental health can withstand the barrage. What happened was after university, I started working in creative jobs, which equally I wouldn't have known how to do when I was younger. But um, they just kind of happened. I worked in TV, making documentaries for years, then I was a journalist. Um, and through those jobs, I met other creative people and the world opened up. Have you been able to switch Ted off or is he still there in your mind? They're always like, every character you write, they're a part of you and they stay in your heart. And I've got another book in my deal with headlines, so I've actually been writing that. At the same time, Albert Entwistle, The Secret Life of Albert Entwistle, has come out in America. So I've been doing promo for the American version of Albert whilst writing Ted and still actually I was I'm still doing some promo for Albert in the States whilst promoting Ted in the UK and finishing off the next book which will be coming out in January 2024 so um yeah he he is part of me and his is a story that I very much would like to come back to if 
the book. I mean, it's only been a few weeks in hardback, but if it does as well as we're hoping, I do have an idea for how to continue the story and it would be nice to do that. But let's see how it goes down. Fantastic. Well, a question that is asked of every author, but with you being gluten-free, well, you still may have an answer, but let's see. Um, It's a very important question and it is what is your biscuit of choice that is powering your writing of these wonderful books? Oh, now that's interesting. I don't really eat biscuits. We do have gluten-free biscuits, but in the house, I mean. Basically, I have a thing where I struggle to limit myself with, I'm not very good at portion control. I always eat really big meals. (laughs) And then... I kind of can't stop myself. It's, I've no willpower. It's terrible. But what I can do, I'm quite good at stopping myself in between meals from snacking. I tend to have, this is a really boring answer, but I tend to have like a bag of cashew nuts or yogurt or they're kind of my snacks rather than... I wonder whether I didn't get into biscuits because the same reason with cake. Mm. I'll tell you what, chocolate brownies would be my answer because... I do like chocolate brownies and often when they do gluten-free versions of biscuits or cakes, they're not anywhere near as good. And chocolate brownies are one of those where you can't tell the difference. Yes, they're glorious ones. I don't know how they make them, but you literally can't tell the difference. So. <laughs> now, my last question is, as we're recording this, I'm currently in rehearsals for being fairy godmother in the pantomime Cinderella. And so what I'm asking of all authors at the moment is, if you were in the pantomime Cinderella, what character might you like to play? I'd like to play the dame. Oh, fantastic. Because I did do all the school shows when I was a kid. I did a couple of pantos and loved it. But I never did the dame because in those days I wouldn't have been comfortable dressing up as a woman. And I'm sure you remember in the book, Ted does do a panto dame when he's in his teens. And that's, um, we have a flashback sequence to that. And that's his acceptable way of exploring his desire to dress up as a woman. I wouldn't have been comfortable doing it in those days. So I kind of feel like it's unfinished business. I've written a book about a drag queen and somebody was a pantomime dame. But maybe if I was in Cinderella, actually in Cinderella, is it... Is there a dame or is it the witch? Yes, it's two dames. So, Matt, if if one of them falls ill before the performance, I'll be calling you. Give me a call. I'll be there. I'll do a brilliant wicked stepsister. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, I just can't wait to hear everyone loving Becoming Ted. Matt Kane, thank you so very much. Thank you, Philippa. Now we've got three more books to review, but before I get on to that, we need to go to our first bookish call-in. And this is from Rob. Rob, you get the prize for being the first person to call in. Everybody's welcome. And let's go to Rob and hear what he's reading now. Hi, Philippa and book lovers everywhere. I hope you realise what a kind of worms you're opening by letting the likes of me call in and start waffling on. One of the things that you suggested was to mention the book you're reading. The problem is that I tend not to have just one book on the go at a time. I usually have a real book, an e-book and an audio book running simultaneously. The real book is for when I'm sitting at home reading. At the moment, I'm reading the Terry Pratchett biography, uh, A Life with Footnotes. I have an e-book on my iPad for when I'm out and about 
Currently that one is Good Pop, Bad Pop by Jarvis Cocker. And then I listen to audiobooks when I'm in the kitchen cooking. The one that I'm listening to at the moment is one of the new Penguin range of recordings of the Terry Pratchett books, Unseen Academicals. In this one, Colin Morgan is reading the main role and Bill Nye reads the footnotes and Peter Serafinovich reads, reads the part of death. I also tend to have a couple of poetry books just for dipping in and out of. So that's my current reading list. I look forward to hearing everybody else take care now wonderful thank you so much Rob as I say you get the prize for being the first person to call in come on everyone else be brave Rob's done it let's just hear what you're reading but Rob you didn't say what your favourite biscuit is so you're going to have to call back next week and tell us that I've got the Jarvis Cocker book I haven't read it yet I saw him at the Hay Festival last year and thought he was so fascinating and so I did get hold of his book so you've made me want to go and get on with that love the range of books my goodness we've got printed books we've got ebooks we've got audio books excellent just need your biscuit of choice from please anyway let's get on oh and just to remind you it's in the show notes the link to record the message if you want to it's www.speakpipe.com forward slash qbr Right, let's get on to Linwood Barclay's latest thriller, Look Both Ways. Are you ready for this? We need to get the blurb. It's quite a long blurb, so settle down. The residents of Garrett Island are part of a visionary experiment. Their cars have been sent to the mainland, and now for one month they've got self-driving vehicles called Arrivals. With a simple voice command, an arrival will take you wherever... The page is gone then, sorry. Wherever you want to go. And because these cars are networked and aware of each other, road mishaps are a thing of the past. As the world's press arise for a glimpse of this driverless future, Islander and single mum Sandra Montrose preps with a huge media event. She's ready for this new world. Her husband died when he fell asleep at the wheel one night and she's relieved her two teens, Archie and Katie, may never need driver's licences. God knows Archie already finds enough ways to get into trouble and Katie, unbeknownst to her mum, is flirting with danger as she investigates what strange secret the old man across the street is keeping in his garage. But as this special media day gets underway, there are signs all is not well. A member of the press has vanished, possibly murdered. There are rumours of industrial sabotage an unleashing of a malevolent virus. Before long, the arrivals aren't taking orders from their passengers anymore. They're starting to organise, they're starting to hunt, and they've got the residents of Garrett Island in their sights. Let's go to the first chapter. Prologue. Wendy was clipping along the Pacific Coast Highway, arguing with her mother over the Bluetooth about when she would have time to come to Detroit and see her father before he died, which was laying it on pretty thick, considering what he had was bursitis, when she noticed that the car in front of her had no driver. This is quite a change for Linwood, I would say. I mean, I love all Linwood's books, and this one is just as good, but it is different, so... It's a it's a bit of a, a John Mars influence, I would say. We can't say self-driving cars are dystopian because, you know, they're, they're here and just round the corner. 
Um, but it's one of those where you start off, you're lulled into thinking, oh, yes, this is great, self-driving cars. And then pretty soon you're thinking, actually, no, thank you. I'd rather not. And it just takes you on this journey and explores those themes. So if you're a fan of a thriller, whether you're a Linwood Barclay fan or not, as I say, this is a bit different. And so it's fascinating to see what happens with the cars and all that goes on. So very good. Now, two more books left and then we're done. The One That Got Away by Charlotte Rickson. Let me read you the blurb of this lovely book. OK. Benjamin's world is turned upside down the day he meets Clara. Instinctively, he knows that she is his person and he is hers. But the devastating events of one of their last nights at university will take their lives in very different directions. Twenty years later, a bombing is reported in the city where Clara and Ben met and she is pulled back to a place she tries not to remember – and the first love she could never forget. Searching for Ben, Clara prays that 20 years of regret is about to end. But is it too late to put right what went wrong? This is not a love story, but it is a story of first love, enduring love, the mistakes we make and the lengths we'll go to to put things right. First sentence, April 2022. It's a hotter day than anyone anticipated for April, and he's sweating, but not just because of the heat. The backpack, so carefully laden with its components just a few hours ago, is sticky against his back. He's wary of the crowds jostling him as he strides towards the stadium. He has been here so many times before, he knows the place as intimately as he knows his own home. So what did I think about this book? I thought it was engaging, it was intriguing, it was a bit different. It was, yeah, it's about love, but it's not about love. It's about light, but it's also about darkness. It was sort of the, the highs and lows. I just thought it was a really different take on a book. And I'm definitely going to be following more that Charlotte Rickson writes. Sorry, Charlotte, no, no pressure there. But uh, yeah, really interesting read. So that was very good. And then we come on to the last one. And I have got this. This is The Darlings Asylum by Noel O'Reilly. And my copy is from Goldsboro Books and it has the most beautiful sprayed edges. I am a glutton for glutton. Is that the right phrase? I love a sprayed edge anyway. I really do. It makes a lovely book even lovelier. And let me read you the blurb on this one. In 1886, a respectable young woman must acquire a husband, but Violet Pring does not want to marry. She longs to be a professional artist and live on her own terms. When her scheming mother secures a desirable marriage proposal from an eligible Brighton gentleman for her, Violet protests. Her family believes she is deranged and deluded, so she is locked away in Hillwood Grange Lunatic Asylum against her will. In her new cage, Violet faces an even greater challenge. She must escape the clutches of a sinister and formidable doctor and set herself free. Let's do first sentence. We file down a broad staircase, most of us in the uniform dress of vertical stripes. Our skirts rustle, our boots thunder on bare wood. Some are mumbling, others mute. Morbidity hangs about us like a cloud. The attendants descend alongside us in their white nurses' dresses and caps, some helping women too infirm or demented to make their way down alone. Ah, uh, mixed views about this one. 
I loved a lot of it. Um, it's awful to say you love. I love reading about asylums, but I enjoy it because it just makes me so cross with what people had to go through, particularly women uh, who were put in these asylums for doing absolutely nothing wrong. I mean, book reading used to be something that I think I'd have been in an asylum a long time ago, if that was still a case, if, you, if it's still the case, if you read books as a woman, you were put in an asylum. So I liked a lot of it. But then in the sort of the the final third of the book, the final quarter, things took a change and I didn't enjoy it as much. But I, I don't know if that was me and me just judging it in the wrong ways. I am sure it I'm sure it was. If you've read this book, do let me know your thoughts. I'd be really keen to know what you thought. It says to marry is madness, to escape is impossible. I think it was just me, but it wasn't what I had expected from the ending. Maybe that's a good thing, actually. Shame on me for saying that. But anyway, I wasn't so sure about that one, but still beautifully written. So those are our books this week. We've reviewed The Whispering Muse by Laura Purcell and Laura very kindly came on. That was a great book. Then we've had Becoming Ted by Matt Cain and that's a great book and Matt Cain wants to talk to us about that as well. We've also had Look Both Ways by Linwood Barclay, The One That Got Away by Charlotte Rickson and The Darlings of the Asylum by Noel O'Reilly. Rob's been on and talked to us about his books and can't wait to hear from more of you next week. That's it for now. I'm sending you on your way. Just, just look after yourselves. And I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free warbyparker.com slash covered.